Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. It significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have two people today. Uh, they're both authors of the book, Sorry, 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 uh, The Case for Good Apologies. So the authors are Marjorie Ingle and Susan McCarthy. They're both here with us today. So we're going to talk about their book, what made them write it, what it tells people, and then about their backgrounds. So thank you both for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, whoever wants to start, uh, tell me a bit about uh, both of your backgrounds and how you got to where you're at with your, your current interests in this book. I'll start, if I may. Marjorie and I both used to live in San Francisco, and around that time I wrote a piece, a humor piece based on current news events, stuff that nobody remembers now, making fun of sorry-if apologies. You know, sorry if you didn't understand what I was getting at. Sorry if you don't get my sense of humor. Sorry if your whole nation responded irrationally to an accidental bombing of your embassy. Uh, you know, they ran it. It was fun. I didn't think any more about it, except that I got a lot of response. People saying, I made my mom read that. I printed it out. And I got my boyfriend to read it because they had gotten sorry if apologies and they were not happy. And I gradually realized that this was something a lot of people cared about. I talked to Marjorie about it. Marjorie has a lot of background in writing about apology and forgiveness. And I'll let her explain why we then teamed up to do the uh, website. Yeah, I had moved to New York City and I was writing for both a lot of parenting magazines and a lot of Jewish publications, which means that every year you think about apologies and forgiveness at the high holidays. And as for the parenting part, I was the parent of, at the time of a somewhat feral toddler who spent pretty much all of nursery school in the consequences chair. So I was thinking a lot about apologies and forgiveness and how you teach them. So we joined forces to work on SorryWatch.com in 2012. And then in 2016, a certain political thing happened that made people very interested in apologies and not apologizing and whether apologies were important or not. And we ended up going a lot deeper than just sort of a funny 
website that looked at research on apology and bad celebrity apologies. And the book was a really great opportunity for us to go deeper still and really examine apologies and brain science and why it's so hard and to really give credit to the amount of power that a good apology can have. Mm, okay. So what makes an apology effective or not effective, you know, uh, genuine or ingenuous? We did a lot of research looking at apologies. What is good about this one? What's bad about that one? Why are people upset about this one? And we came up with a, a list. It was originally six points, and then we made it six and a half. And that we think really encapsulates how you do a good apology. Now, not every step is necessary for every apology. If you just bumped into somebody in the crowd and say, sorry, you don't have to go all the way down the list. But the first step is to say you're sorry or you apologize, not, oh, I regret that. That was sad. You have to actually take enough responsibility to say, I am sorry. I apologize. You have to say, and this is the second step, exactly what it is you're apologizing for. You have to be specific. You can't say, oh, man, sorry about Wednesday. Sorry about why that whole thing went south. Yeah, sorry about all that. You have to be specific and say what it is you're apologizing for. And in step three, you show that you understand the impact. You know, I took your car and I didn't bring it back and you were stranded. Step four is no excuses. Now, occasionally you do need to explain things, but it's dangerous because explanation really easily becomes excuses. And that's no good. Step number five is why it won't happen again. And step number six is making reparations if that's appropriate, you know, paying a dry cleaning bill, getting them a new tricycle, whatever it is. And then the last half step we added to listen to them. After you've apologized, they might say, you know, that didn't bother me. What really bothered me was this other thing. So listen, let them have their say. People really, really want to be heard. I don't know what percentage of the population is the type of person that never apologizes for anything. I'm sure everyone knows someone like that. They just, the person just can't, they can never admit they're wrong or, or anything like that. You know, how do those would, people figure into this framework? I don't know that you could say what percentage of the population is, you know, is completely incapable of apologizing. But I think a lot of us haven't been taught to apologize. We didn't see it modeled by parents. Don't always live in a culture that values apologies. Most people, I think, want to maintain their relationships and maybe aren't aware of just how important apologies can be in building bridges and creating, you know, connections between people, how important they can be in the workplace. And I think the fact that we see good apologies as well as bad apologies go viral tells us that people do, I mean, it's easy to laugh and make fun of you know, either somebody who's completely intransigent, intransigent, I can speak English, intransigent and won't apologize no matter what, or who apologizes really, really badly. And it's fun to make fun of terrible celebrity apologies and political apologies and corporate apologies. But people also really yearn for hearing the good ones. And I think that should tell us something about before we're so knee jerk about, you know, nobody's going to accept this apology or it doesn't matter. A real good apology can have real power. Yeah. What happens if you do make an earnest, heartfelt apology, but it just it falls on deaf ears? Um, You know, what is the common response of a person that does that? Do they then get angry? You know, uh, what if you make an apology? And again, you're trying your best, but 
the other party or society at large is like, well, I don't care. I would say a lot of times your apology might not be accepted because it's a really crap apology. That's why we have those six and a half steps. Our brain is not wired to make us do this well. In fact, the way we are designed as humans, we looked at a lot of different studies and, you know, we are wired to see ourselves as the hero of our own story. You know, how could we go through life if we didn't see ourselves as basically good people? And when we're confronted with the cognitive dissonance of, I am a good person, but I did a bad thing, our brain will basically turn somersaults to make us not responsible, to say that there were extenuating circumstances, to say the apology doesn't really matter or won't be accepted. That's why we say apologizing is a brave act, apologizing well. So if you're saying, well, my apology won't be accepted anyway, my first response, and I think Susan's too, is was it a good apology? Because sometimes we think, you know, we all recognize terrible apologies from other people, but when it comes out of our own mouths, you'd be surprised. And in fact, I have the six and a half steps up on my screen at all times. I practice when I need to apologize. I sometimes workshop it with Susan because it's not natural to do it well. And sometimes, look, the great philosopher Maimonides said a thousand years ago that you have to try three times to apologize well to someone. And if they still won't accept your apology after three times, you're off the hook. It's on them, which I think is a really interesting point. I would say to Maimonides, after the first one or two apologies aren't accepted, maybe Maimonides could say, I really want to make things right with you and it doesn't look like this is working. What am I missing? Actually ask. That's such a good point. You can ask someone to try again if you're not going to accept their apology. And if you're the one who's apologizing and it's not going over, I love Susan's idea of, you know, saying, what can I do better here? Okay. What about if you, if someone says to you, how could you do that? You should apologize. Does that poison the apology if someone says that to the person first? No, not at all. You can say, wow, you're right. I should apologize. Or you can say, well, wait a minute. How is that bad? I mean, you can discuss that. And I think, you know, you will definitely see people who have been ordered to apologize and you can tell that they are attempting to follow that instruction without actually giving away a single bit of their pride. And it makes a terrible apology. Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Adalema Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Adalema has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. It significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. What about if a person doesn't give you any answer? Literally, they just say nothing after you apologize. Would it be a good idea to say to the person, you know, please give me feedback. Did that, was that acceptable to you or not? I don't want to go away from this having apologized the wrong way or not addressed your concern. Like, do you counsel people to say that as well? 
most times people aren't completely silent. It's very hard to be completely silent to somebody face to face. Sometimes you will send an email and it goes into the void or a text that isn't responded to. In general, we say if something, if you know that you committed a really major offense, send a letter because that shows that you get the seriousness. For something that's less of a big deal, a text or an email is fine. If there's any question that the person might not be comfortable with you talking to them, do not try to do it in person. Don't do it in the office if you're in their cubicle and they can't get away from you. In general, though, you don't get to ask for forgiveness in the apology. You don't get to say, so do you forgive me? Because asking for forgiveness is like asking for a gift. And it's rude to ask for a gift. There may be another conversation later where you say, hey, I haven't heard back from you. This relationship is really important to me. And if I didn't apologize the way you need me to apologize, I would love it if you could tell me what I need to do. And also, if you don't want to hear from me, let me know that too. Yeah, what about saying that? Like you apologize to someone and telling them, you know, if this is not enough and we can't resolve it like that, I accept that. And I'm going to apologize to you anyway. Does that help? Well, as long as they're not feeling cornered, when you say, I'm going to apologize to you anyway, that should not be happening in person. They should be able to to get out of an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. One of the phenomena we talk about is sometimes when people are newly in recovery in particular, and this is also a thing sometimes at the Jewish High Holidays, people are so suffused with the desire to make amends and to do that part of the personal inventory that is part of, you know, making things right when you're in recovery, that they don't really think about whether the person they're apologizing to is ready to be apologized to, is expecting to hear from them. Sometimes people go back into their past. And you just remember the point of an apology is to put the other person's feelings in the forefront. That's why, you know, saying I regret is the wrong thing to say in an apology, because regret is about how you feel. A good apology is about how the other person is going to feel. Today's society, especially in a legalistic sense, it actually can hurt someone legally in certain cases to apologize. And I think this is terribly unfortunate because there are certain professions and people that have, have learned, if I apologize, I can cause myself liability. So maybe that bleeds over into the rest of their life. I don't know. Actually, I'm going to take this one, Susan, even though I just answered the last one. And you can jump in at any time because I did a lot of the, the medical research here. And the Harvard Hospital System did a huge and really important study on medical apologies, because those are the ones we think about often as being really terrible, talking about regret and saying the unfortunate circumstance, the unfortunate situation, the unfortunate results of the procedure. And people get angry when they are apology apologized too poorly. And people are more likely to sue when they are apologized too poorly. Juries are likely to give larger verdicts in malpractice suits when there has not been an apology or when there has been a crap apology. And the Harvard hospital system, one of the biggest hospital systems in the country, did a thing saying, did a report saying, this is how you apologize. You take responsibility. All the things that we think an apology should do, they also think an apology should do. And the funny thing about that is that when you interview people who are victims of medical wrongdoing, the thing that they want the most is to know that this isn't going to happen to someone else and to get a real apology. And surprisingly, when those things happen, people are less vindictive, people are less likely to sue, 
And if there is a lawsuit, the ju- the verdict is uh, the financial repercussions are going to be smaller. There's also right now I'm blanking on which Scandinavian country it is, but where the procedure in place is when there is a medical error, the policy is for the doctor to gather the family and the patient to say, this is what happened. I'm sorry. And to offer a settlement right there in the room. And it's a small settlement, but it's a thing that makes people feel heard and valued. And we Mm. just we are so legalistic as a society. Our knee jerk response is, oh, my God, liability. And that's actually not how things work when you look at the research and research that's not done by, you know, lawyers who make money off of liability stuff. This is a very important finding, by the way. So please continue. Yeah, I think don't admit anything is kind of an urban legend. And you hear it in medicine, as Marjorie's been describing. You see that in corporate apologies or corporate statements, because people will pop up and they'll say, don't admit anything. It'll give you it'll you admit liability. Don't apologize. You're making yourself liable. And that really is more of an urban legend than something that is backed up by the research. In fact, one of the great sort of making things right stories that's taught in business schools is after the 1982 Tylenol poisonings case. Do you know what I'm talking about? I yeah. recalled a lot of Tylenol they, Yeah. So a couple of people were poisoned. Somebody, you know, in the I think it was the Chicago suburbs, the guy, whoever did it was never found. They recalled all of the Tylenol in existence. The head of the company had daily press briefings. Like, imagine unfiltered talking to the press every day about both the investigation and what you're doing. And uh, one of the uh, an advertising executive was quoted in The New York Times saying Tylenol is like a dead company now. I think that, that Tylenol is going to survive it's more likely that the water in my company's water cooler is going to turn to wine than that Tylenol is going to survive this. Tylenol not only survived it, they changed how packaging works. You know, now we have the triple protective, you know, you have the wrapper around the outside of the package. You don't have powder in the capsules. You have um, gel caps now and you have the stuff on the top. You have the cotton on the top. So they changed the way the business works. They not only survived, they went from like 0% market share right after this to once again dominating the market. And it's taught as this is how you handle a crisis. And we're not used to that. We're used to silence and dissembling and passing the buck and passive language And that's not what people want. And people get excited and happy when a company surprises them because we do tend to expect, you know, the runaround and the worst. And people are very loyal to companies that handle crises well. What are some things that you've seen individuals or companies do that ruins their ability to apologize after that? That something they said or did, it's just going to poison the whole thing and an apology is not going to work no matter what they do it. Susan, you want to do United? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I've forgotten the year that United had overbooked flights, as airlines often do, and asked for volunteers to get off the flight. And when they didn't instantly get enough volunteers, they picked people to volunteer. And they went to this Dr. Dow, who was sitting there in his peaceful seat, and they said, you have volunteered to get off. And he said, no, I'm not getting off. And they called their airport police, and they had him dragged off struggling. He lost teeth. He was bleeding. Everybody saw the video. The company was, their response was to blame him. He was bad, and he didn't comply. And they went for days with these really bad apologies where they were blaming the guy. 
They followed up by saying, okay, all right, we feel bad about it. We apologize to him. And his family said, no, they didn't apologize to him. And that just looked so bad. That just really made people distrust United so badly because they didn't admit, they didn't apologize for the longest time. They refused to recognize their very real responsibility. What kind of uh, impact did it have on them? Does anyone know? Was it any financial impact or did they, you know, after a while, everyone just forgot? Now it's no big deal. That is one of the points that we make in the book is, yes, was there a temporary impact? Absolutely. Was there an impact on this particular executive? Absolutely. But, you know, we live in, you know, you're going to be mad, but if United goes where you want to go and you have a miles on it and it's the cheapest way to get there, you're probably going to take a United flight. Also, it's very easy to demonize companies, but United was also the, you know, shortly after that launched a flight academy with a diversity initiative to train 5,000 new pilots and half of them are going to be women and people of color. JetBlue is often held up as this example of... Well, what did they do with, with the, how they treated the guy? What is diversity? doesn't have anything to do, nothing, but I'm saying that United has done good things as a company and bad things as a company. And people tend not to, you know, the reason why we have a special interest in interpersonal apologies, not, you know, between human beings on a human level. And that's really the focus of the book, though we're very interested in why there are very bad, so many bad corporate and political and governmental and institutional apologies. We feel that regular people can do a whole lot better than than corporations and we you know it's interesting to follow what happens with corporations but ultimately their duty is to their shareholders not to you so it can be very dissatisfying if you want if you're hoping that a terrible apology will have long time impacts on a company sometimes it does and that's great or it's bad depending on how you look at it but look capitalism is capitalism this is how it works and Companies do bad things. Companies do good things. Companies apologize well. Companies apologize poorly. One of our examples of a great apology was JetBlue, which after they had a problem that was similar to the Southwest problem this past holiday season, took out a full page ad with really superb apologies in The Times and I think The Washington Post. And everyone was like, this is one of the great corporate apologies. But then shortly after that, remember the flight attendant who quit on JetBlue and grabbed two beers and deployed the slide and like, I'm out. And like, that was not safe. That should have not, that was not the way procedures should have gone. That's real security failings. People who are like, yeah, this is an awesome company were then super like, oh, right after the January 6th insurrection, their first corporate donation was to an election denier who happened to sit on an aviation panel. I don't think we should expect companies to really ace this all the time and for there to be long-term consequences. I think we should focus on how we interact with each other. Um, what about uh, cancel culture nowadays? I don't know if this is the, the strength of the apology or not, but it seems like some people have apologized, but society doesn't seem to care. They just keep going and going. So the apology uh, falls on deaf ears. Is that what's happening? Or is it, again, just the apology is not proper? I would say, who are you going to tell me has really been canceled? Louis C.K. is selling out stadiums. People who are going to be angry are going to be angry. People who think, you know, cancel culture is a real problem 
people who have been quote unquote canceled then can make a whole lot of money saying cancel culture sucks. So I really wouldn't worry about celebrities who are canceled. So you don't think it's a thing that uh, anyone has made like a true heartfelt apology, but it just didn't work? I mean, are there instances you, where that happened? You tell me. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've seen some instances of certain people that have lost their livelihood, and yet they've still apologized, but uh, they still lost their livelihood. So I think at least in some cases it hasn't worked. I want to know, because like, we do look for really good apologies, whether there have been long-time impacts from them. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, if... There was what even if there's I'm now I'm thinking about Jonah Lehrer, who was a writer who it turned out had plagiarized almost everything and he apologized poorly and he's got he still gets tons of money for speeches. I feel like we like a narrative and we stick to a narrative. And if you're on the left, you have this narrative and you're on the right, you have this narrative. And the truth almost, you know, you have to look case by case. And I am not aware of anyone who has apologized well and remained canceled. Susan, you? Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple cases. I'm thinking of the woman who went to South Africa just before she got on the plane. She made what she thought was a a funny and even, you know, conscious joke about how she wasn't going to get AIDS because she was white. And then she turned off her phone and got on the plane. And all the time she's flying across the ocean to Africa, people are saying, oh, she's in big trouble. She was in big trouble. She did lose her job. She did apologize at first, like, that was totally a joke. And then she realized how seriously people were taking it, and she apologized better. And we looked into it, and she eventually was rehired. She wasn't destroyed. She went through a bad time for just silly reasons, but she wasn't, wasn't canceled. Also, the two women who were on vacation and they had this little hobby of uh, taking pictures of themselves disobeying signs, you know, quiet zone, and they would pretend to be yelling and so forth. Uh, they were school teachers, and one of them showed them behaving disrespectfully in a, what, was it Arlington National yeah, Cemetery? Yeah, it was Arlington National Cemetery, giving the finger yes. to the grave sites next to a sign that was like, please behave respectfully. Right. And again, people were horrified. They lost their jobs. But then you invest. They got new jobs in the same field. They weren't canceled after, you know, the bad apologies. You know, that it was kidding. What's wrong with you? Don't you understand a joke? They made good apologies that didn't save the jobs they had at the time. But then they were hired elsewhere in other comparable positions. Their lives were not destroyed. They weren't canceled. Right. One thing that does happen is when people on the internet get angry, particularly at women, they get death threats and rape threats. But that is not something that tends to have to be related to apologies, sadly. Hmm. Maybe not sadly. Have you been hired by any, let's say, large organizations that had to train them to you know, handle crisis management with a proper apology? Or We don't want to do that. That's not who our book is for. Unfortunately, crisis communications is fr- frequently when people are like, ugh, a PR person wrote that. There is the sameness, the glossy, you know, insincerity that you can tell is not how the person normally talks. We are interested in helping regular people apologize well to each other, not in helping anybody, not in helping a company's bottom line, not in helping anyone survive a crisis. Like, that's not our interest. Our interest is in 
the social psychology and honestly, as utopianist as this sounds in building a better world between human beings. Susan, what were you going to say? I was agreeing with you and I was saying also part of that is teaching kids to apologize in a way that's not oppressive and makes them hate apologies for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Susan, I think if anybody wanted us to come to a school or talk to a parent group about apologies, we'd be happy to do that. But, you know, in terms of being hired out to, you know, some dimwit celebrity, that is not of interest to us. Yes. So we think that kids can be taught to apologize well. And like Whitney Houston, we believe that children are the future. Teach them well and let them live the way. No, I'm kidding, but I'm not. That if often good apologies aren't modeled to kids and... Susan, I love your dog story. Will you tell the dog story? Of course. Yeah. Beginning dog owners often make this mistake with their new dog, which is they call the new dog and the dog is romping around and it doesn't come. And they call the dog and they get madder and madder because the dog doesn't come. And finally, the dog gets tired of romping and the dog runs up to them and they grab the dog by the collar and they shake it and they say, bad dog, bad dog. They're saying bad dog because the dog didn't come right away. But from the dog's point of view... When you come, they're mean to you. They're mad at you. Who knows why? Don't come. It's it's not a good idea. It's a trap. And this is a very basic misunderstanding of animal behavior. But we also do this with kids very often is we tell the kid, you know, you hit your sister. You must apologize. The kid apologizes. And then instead of rewarding the kid and saying, that was good, that was brave, that was better than a lot of adults did, I'm very impressed with you. We say, we don't hit people in this household. I made you apologize to your sister because this is a no-hitting zone. We don't do that. No hitting, no violence, no pulling hair. And so what you've done in giving the kid the lecture is you've punished the kid for apologizing. And that's surprisingly easy mistake to make. And again, it violates all the principles of animal behavior, of operant conditioning, of learning. I would like to point out that Susan is the co-author of an international bestseller on animal behavior that has been translated into 21 languages. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> you know, after you both for, uh, for kids, though, right? How to uh, not make them resent apologizing. Yeah. yeah. I remember I've asked my kids to say sorry. They're like, sorry. <laughs> you can tell it's not to that right, they, Well, they, you know, they don't have to like it, but you can also talk to, you know, it's also important to say to a kid, especially a younger kid, that hurt another person because sometimes they're just not they're not aware yet of things outside of their own body and experience so narrating the here is why what you know that was not acceptable behavior and then praising the apology is good and eventually it is not human nature that's what all the brain science in this book talks about but to say to a kid you just did something really brave that adults often suck at doing can be really a powerful motivator. So where is this heading now that you've got your book out there? What's next for your research and your study into, you know, good apologies? There's always another bad one. And hopefully there's always another good one. And even after writing about this together for, you know, a decade, I don't think we're bored of working with each or hostile about working with each other. And we're not bored about apologies. So we're going to continue working on sorrywatch.com, and who knows? Okay. Well, very good. What's the publication date of the book, Sorry, Sorry, Sorry? Is it out now, or when will it be? And uh, let's restate the title and resources for listeners so they could find out more. 
Sorry, sorry, sorry. The case for good apologies. It came out from Gallery, which is a Simon and Schuster imprint. It came out in January, and we are busy doing readings and appearances on podcasts like this one just to to try and spread the word. Well, both of you, thank you so much for coming, Marjorie and Susan. Thank you so much for doing this book. I think it's a really important subject that will really help a lot of people. They sincerely make an effort to learn it and do it in their lives. I think it would help a lot of, you know, heal a lot of relationships that didn't need to be to be broken over, you know, whatever happened. So the work you guys are doing, I think, is really important and valuable. But so thank you. And thank you for coming, too. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Richard. Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. This significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.